welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. So welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, today, my guest um, is Nathan Phillips. Nathan, I, I'm, I can't really, I don't feel I do justice to introducing you. So I think I'm going to have to put the responsibility onto you to, to do a little bit of an intro. And, you know, what we like to do on Inspiring Futures is do the kind of the um, quick resume. Uh, how did you get to where you got to today? What was your journey? Uh, it can be as, yeah. as as brief or as uh, as complex as you want it to be. So maybe we start there and end up where you are today. Awesome. I was um, I'm a fan of your podcast, and I was thinking about my accelerated biography on the subway this morning. Um, I don't know if you remember subways. You can ride in them now. It's super exciting. Um, <clears throat> and I kind of wanted to start my accelerated biography at the very, 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 very beginning. Um, which is um, my mom was a waitress and my dad was a regular um, at a bar in Laconia, New Hampshire called the Scandinavian Inn. And um, it was, you know, the heady days um, <clears throat> of the love revolution and one thing led to another and little Nathan came into being. Um, and this uh, waitress and this regular at the bar um, went to, they were making a decision about whether or not they wanted to make the commitment. Um, and they were driving in what I heard is a sports car through the white mountains of New Hampshire and on a long drive decided that they were going to keep me. Um, and at that point, their stories about who I am and where I come from totally diverge. Um, and so I chose at a very early age, um, without like a really coherent understanding of what my identity was to kind of participate in the making up of my story. So I'm gonna introduce myself, but know that absolutely parts of the story are fiction and absolutely parts of them are totally documentary <laughs> reality. Um, but uh, I uh, spent most of my youth in Fall River, Massachusetts, um, which is right next to Providence, Rhode Island. And I, um, did a couple things there, which I think really played out in kind of who I became as an adult in my career. One is I converted to Judaism when I was 12, um, mostly for the jokes, but definitely for the rituals and the culture. And I think this idea of um, rules around how you hang out with people have had an immense impact on how I've kind of evolved as a creative professional. Um, one of the most important things I think everyone in advertising should remember is that you can walk into any space, not knowing anyone and go, hey everybody, this is Steve, it's his birthday. And the whole room will burst into singing happy birthday. No one knows each other, right? Everyone will play that game. And for me, like making that choice as a young person to get involved in a rule set around how we kind of come together was super exciting. I don't believe in God, I'm not a dogmatic person, but I love the idea that you show up at a party with really interesting rules. And that's kind of what I try to facilitate as a creative professional. The second kind of big, um, and this is probably not a super accelerated biography, but I'll do my best, um, was when I was in high school, kind of entering into high school, I went to Providence 
and I lied about my age and I joined an improv group. Um, and this is before UCB um, and kind of the commoditization of improvisation. Um, this was black box theater, performance art, um, making stuff up. And as I went through high school and I did sports as the editor of the high school newspaper and, and all that stuff, I was always a writer, but I was developing socially as an improvisationalist. Um, three nights a week, I was in Providence rehearsing with grownups and learning that kind of just like Passover, you know, as a young person, you can walk into a room full of strangers. And if you know the rules and you can design interactions, you can have a completely magical, crazy make them up experience. And the kind of fast forward, um, I worked as a writer, um, always creating through the lens of improvisation um, until my early thirties. Um, and I'd made a bunch of stuff in collaboration with other creators in museums like MoMA and the Museum of Contemporary Art in LA, um, the New Museum, um, the Whitney. Um, I'd had the opportunity, I won an Emmy as an interactive documentary filmmaker and had this really cool career making art stuff and performance art um, and comedy all through the lens of collaborating with other people and making stuff up. And um, it got to the point where as a performer, my shows were just me alone on stage and they'd be an hour long show that start with a really interesting interactive premise. I made a show called Sex You, I'm Gonna. And I came out on stage, room full of strangers, um, sometimes a very big, terrifying room full of strangers. And I would say, I need a volunteer and people would volunteer and I'd say, cool. And then I would say, you've just volunteered to come up on stage and um, make love together with me in front of all these people, to which of course they would say no. And obviously I would say, that's totally fine. Um, perhaps I could show you that I am really attractive, right? Or that I'm the type of person, potentially we could make a life together. And then I would spend an hour learning about the audience, interacting with them, sourcing stories um, and crafting these different scenes where I was just trying to become the person they wanted me to become. Um, and after making all that work, um, my advertising mentor and now sister-in-law, Caroline Crudit, um, engaged me um, to kind of consult on some interactive stuff at the agency she was working at. Um, and somebody there thought I was a copywriter. And I was like, at that point, looking at um, the world of brands and thinking about interactive experiences and making really, really, really large stuff for large audiences. Um, and I saw an opportunity and I said, yes. And I made a decision at that point. And this is where I think the origin story maybe is most relevant. Um, that day I started an improv show, but I didn't tell anybody it was happening. <laughs> um, and that improv show was, I'm a creative director um, and real life is my audience. And here we are about 10 years later um, and it worked out. And I think the, the thing that I would kind of throw out there is the big transition for me isn't a professional one. Um, it's kind of the insight that um, a lot of art starts with an idea and then you try to find an audience for your idea. Um, it's very similar to advertising, except in advertising, you find an audience and then you make a show for them. 
So for me, like learning to code talk um, between different types of creators with different types of backgrounds um, is all really the same exercise in service of coming up with a strategically correct, amazing experience for a room full of people that I don't know. So now? <laughs> now um, I am the uh, co-founder of a company called Technology, Humans, and Taste, uh, or that. If you're Googling us, I suggest using the long name. If you're speaking about us, I suggest using the short one. Um, we're going on five years old. Um, our offices that I'm sitting in right now are in Chinatown in New York City. Um, and uh, we've got an amazing group of people um, working with all sorts of brands from Signal, the data-free messaging app, uh, to Nielsen, um, to Nike, to Walmart, um, to the immersive Van Gogh experience. And um, our work and kind of the structure of our agency is all premised on a lot of the same things that I was just talking about, which is um, what we don't do is um, like a traditional agency, um, line up, go in, um, with an idea that we've already kind of considered and decided that it is strategically correct and force people to buy our show. Um, instead, we've developed a process which is very interactive, um, highly strategic, and I'm happy to unpack it for you, um, and really collaborative with the client. And what we do is create um, campaigns that are very, very unlike um, traditional campaigns but tend to really, really work and be very, very effective. And it all comes down to being able to listen to your audience in really, really close, intimate ways and translate that into an experience that people are gonna engage in. So what, let's, let's go back. This, let's go back to the story um, and the pivotal moments. Uh, converting to Judaism at 12 is, the, the some, some light bulb went off, something went off to. Mm -hmm. that, I think a um, big thing, right? Yeah, I, I think um, I'm a I'm an East Coaster. I'm a New Englander. Um, and there's a moment um, when um, I had to kind of confront the fact that maybe classic rock and the Patriots, <laughs> um, there was more to life. Um, there was more dimensionality. Um, and I um, really didn't understand. And part of that had to do with my upbringing and all the, the fun, exciting things that um, happened to me as a kid, which happened to all sorts of people. But I think I was really interested in structuring an identity um, intentionally, which obviously is something that I have um, an opportunity to do, which is, um, not unique, but definitely, um, it's, it's something that not everybody can do. And I think that, um, I started liking the idea of, um, rules around how you were supposed to interact with people. And, um, Judaism is a really interesting kind of game mechanic, um, Passover as a holiday, um, isn't dogmatic. It's not a religious holiday. It's actually a game experience designed by scholars from ye old days of whenever all these things are made up. Um, and the rules are you have to ask questions and tell a story. And that's it. Everything else is stuff that people have added on, all the songs, all the books and everything. And I actually um, 
became so fascinated with it, I wrote a book called The Unorthodox Agata, um, uh, which started um, with me and Jessica Stewart, uh, my former partner. Um, she designed it. Um, we put a free version of it on the internet and the premise was a Haggadah, right? Um, a rule book for a Passover dinner, but not for Jews, for anybody to have an interesting conversation. And um, it blew up on the internet. And after we put it out as like a free PDF, we saw these pictures of college campuses with like hundreds of people all using our free PDF and got a book deal, published it, became a bestseller. And it's still every Passover pops up in your Barnes and Noble. And then like people post about it online. Um, but what I did was approach it, not from the perspective of a Jew, but from the perspective of somebody who doesn't know anything. Um, and I did my research. And so you find these like really incredible pieces of stories and games in Iran. Um, when people sing Dayenu, they whip each other with spring onions. We should all do that. That's far more fun, right? There's all this cool stuff. If you actually look at the way people behave and what people desire and what people want, you realize that people are weird all the time. And if you just give them some rules and say, hey, everybody, this is a safe place, right? You've got a clear what we would say call to experience, not a call to action, but an invitation to do something, and you all are strategically aligned on the goals, then people will engage in the most interesting ways. And I think I probably intuitively caught on to that a little bit as a preteen, but that's where it's kind of um, informed um, our work at that and, and my work personally, which is um, they're humans right? Tons and tons of humans outside on Canal Street, um, all over the world, um, dying to have a better experience right this very second. And <clears throat> as people who and organizations that collaborate with brands, that's where we need to start. You have an audience that wants you to succeed. You have an audience that's hungry for experience. And if you show up and tell them why they should like you, that's not helping anybody. Right. If you show up and say our cereal is going to save the world because we're going to do this thing and do this thing and do this thing. That's not helping anyone. If you show up and say, hey, like. The story starts with you, right? The we're as a brand going to start a conversation by saying, hey, everybody, here's spring onions, right? Here's our cereal. We're going to play some music. What are we going to do with it? How do we start a dance party? How do we actually get people to engage in the world around them? Um, and I think that's it's a long answer to your question, but I think that's um, what I was going for as a twelve-year-old. So, you know, if if you were being really simplistic and we compartmentalize the world into three boxes, mm -hmm. there's one we call the corporates. They super sort of rational. They they live by rules their whole mode of operation is to keep the trains running, uh, mm -hmm. keep those burgers going into McDonald's, uh, keep them coming out of McDonald's, keep the trains on the tracks. You've got agency land where we're kind of, we're gonna help those guys, but we're not those guys. We don't wanna mm -hmm. be those guys. That's the last thing we wanna be. And then you got artists. Well, we're, we, we, we make up our own rules. Mm -hmm. We live by our own rules. In fact, we are spending our lifetimes or however long we want to be artists focused on one thing. How do we express 
who we are, what we believe in to the rest of the world in a way that is compelling and somehow connects with mm -hmm. an audience. But they are three sort of very distinct boxes. You've got artists who don't necessarily want to conform. They don't want it. They certainly don't want to be corporates. And they probably don't want to work in an ad agency. Mm -hmm. um, you've got ad agency people who like, yeah, I like the money. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to be a starving <laughs> artist. Yeah. That sounds way too hard. And then you got the corporates who are like, that stuff's crazy. <laughs> that's just, that's just crazy. That's full of people in weird suits and glasses and who do go to make strange shows that I can't do that. I can't believe in that. Yeah. So suddenly, you, suddenly you've got to, you know, you've got to make these people who, I mean, my best example of this, and, I, and, I've, and it's an overused example, and I've probably mentioned on a bunch of podcasts, is um, Stephen Colbert about seven, eight years ago did this riff on wheat thins. Mm -hmm. and it was basically he took the wheat thins brief and he sort of made a parody of it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, no more than seven wheat thins must be pictured at any one time. Mm -hmm. Remember, wheat thins are an empowering snack that has the power to change an individual. You know, and he literally riffed on all these things. What was so darn ridiculous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they come from that world where people live by their own rules and they mm -hmm. tend to be very rational. And the last thing they want to do is be themselves. Yeah. So what, what, how, do you un, how do you unpack and unlock that? Um, because um, that's the secret to getting and doing good work. Yeah, what an awesome. So, so, so either either people come to you and they know exactly what they're going to get, or you have to convince them that they need what you have. Or, oh, okay, you help them understand that asking a question and writing a creative brief isn't necessarily the only way to get to success. And um, at that, we talk a lot about the fact that if you want to think differently, which everybody does, um, you have to work differently. Um, and a lot of, and I'll put, I'm putting for those of you at home, I'm putting air quotes around this. <laughs> Creatives um, will talk about the fact that they don't want to get mired down in process. Um, but again, I'll refer to happy birthday. Happy birthday works because that's a good process, right? Where's the name go? We all want this person to be happy and therefore we'll all play this game. So the way that we work as a company um, is we've reimagined step-by-step step the entire strategic process and creative process to solve for really kind of what you talked about with those three categories of people, which is I would love to talk about in detail because I potentially would I think you could potentially scramble those around a little bit, but let's get to that in a second. So um, in terms of our process, what we do is we start with a goal, um, not a brief. Even if the brief exists and the brief is delivered to us, we always collaborate with the client to unpack the goal. Because a lot of the time, if you're writing a brief and you're saying, A, here's what we want to achieve, you're eliminating a lot of potential outcomes 
that could be transformative for your brand. Recently, we made a campaign for Signal where we got them kicked off of Facebook and it was immensely successful, right? That doesn't exist in a brief. Um, what that does, that exists on the internet, right? That exists in human behavior and a brand really reacting to um, an audience in a way that is relevant and creating the type of story that can only happen once. Um, that's powerful marketing, but again, never going to exist in a brief. If you're relying on the single insight, then again, you're winnowing your options for creative discovery, for innovation down so into such a tiny little window, all because one analyst or one strategist says, this is the thing, right? That strategist and everybody knows this at agencies gets so smart about culture, the world of the brand, the consumer. And then they've got to squeeze it all down into this tiny little brief, right? That can't possibly be the best way to come up with an idea. So we start with a goal. And then what we do is we expand out. We create um, a huge body of problems and truths with all the subjectivity about those terms baked right into it. And we generate those problems and truths through a lot of really proprietary, amazing facilitated conversations with outside voices, with stakeholders at the company, um, with people on the street. We also have a searchable database of every piece of research that we've ever done that wasn't owned by a brand. And we have a research team that's constantly adding to it. So with every single project we start out, we can use the machine and natural language processing to sort thousands of problems and truths. And then what we do is instead of um, trying to get rid of everything and decide at the very beginning, here's our direction, we leave the doors open to continue to discover. Um, and that's where you start to get into creating opportunities for brands by saying, hey, we took your brief and while your brief totally made sense and I understand that's where you wanna end up, we changed it into a truly creative, inspiring document and look at all the opportunities we found. And the end of our process, every agency comes in and they say, here's our three big ideas, right? Um, here's a print ad you're never gonna run. Here's a TV ad you can't afford. Here's a bunch of Facebook stuff we comped up, even though you know what Facebook looks like. And the brand goes through and goes, okay, well that first one we thought of, so that's off the table. The second one, you know, we love the font choice and the vignette treatment on the photos. The third idea is really interesting. And then the agency executes something entirely different. That is not strategic, right? That's, that's because of the sales process. That's how agencies have always worked with brands, but that is not responsible because that means agencies are trying to squeeze stuff through and saying, we are totally trustworthy. We did the insight, we did the brief and look, we gave you exactly what you wanted. At that, we present you with a menu. Every single brief could be for free, for a nonprofit. It could be for an internal um, opportunity through our originals department, um, or it could be for a huge brand. We show up with a menu of 25 concepts. And then we work with the brand to create a campaign out of what's in that menu. And the amount of discovery and opportunity that comes out of that process is immense. And I 100% of the time, Ed, we never, ever, ever give people what was on the brief. 
and it's always engaging and it's always effective. And, you know, we, our process um, often is used to make incredibly cool, interactive and linear media all over the world. But we were very much a strategic consultancy during lockdown. Um, you know, we didn't let anybody go. We survived with an immense amount of diligence and, and trust from, from the that humans that work here. But we did it because it is rigorously strategic. And that's where we can work with brands like Nielsen, brands like Critio, brands like Signal, which are in, couldn't be farther apart on the spectrum of brand truths. But it's a process that really is strategic and allows for discovery. You might well, be you on me. Talked about, I was on the, you talked about problems and truths as a database. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does that work? If, can you tell us anything more? Yeah, um, so we um, we consider the machine a collaborator um, here at that, and um, our process um, is one that more than anywhere I've ever worked um, generates a lot of amazing stuff. Um, and so we've created a data structure um, that um, allows um, for all of those inputs to be synthesized into problems and truths. And can I give you a little bit of backstory? So um, when we started the company, um, I had just prior been at the creative lab at Google. Um, my partner, Dave was at Vivo, he used to run production RGA. And um, we knew we wanted to do things differently. Um, and we threw a party in our basement office at the time. Um, and the party, we just invited interesting people, um, not advertising people, like interesting people, um, capital I, capital P, and um, from all sorts of different backgrounds and um, created a form that you fill out. And we, at that party, everybody filled out the form and the form forces you to collaborate. Everybody writes down a problem and everybody writes down a truth and then you trade. And so I end up with Ed's problem and Ed and I, based on the way that we look and based on our backgrounds, probably have somewhat similar lived experiences, even though we come from different places. Um, but it also forces people like me to look through for a moment, somebody else's lens at what a problem is that affects them that I might not be familiar with. And then I solve the problem with the truth. Um, it's a really simple exercise, um, but it means that a private detective um, a guy yesterday, um, this guy, Evan, was fixing my dishwasher. And we had an amazing conversation about music, about Vegas. Um, he speaks, he said, I speak four languages, nine if you count coding languages. And so I gave him an invite, which is a little loyalty card we have, to come to our Friday party. Because since that first party in our basement office, we've had that same party every Friday at four for almost five years and filled out the same forms. And every interesting human I encounter gets invited to that party. We have a curator in-house who reaches out to people. And those problems and truths are really at the heart of the brain behind that. Um, and the key thing I think for us is to get, stop using brains like mine, um, which ultimately the, the brain of the, you know, six foot one New York City, um, Jewish creative director with interesting sneakers um, and to diversify that into a brain that's much bigger than any single humans. So we can actually dive into that database 
and search and look and be inspired by all the conversations that we've ever had. Um, and to be able to do that means we're really supercharging our capabilities and we're always able to see the world through a different lens. We're always trading problems and trading truths with people. And that's very much at the heart of our process and how we work with all of our clients. Sorry, how pure do you keep that? I, do you, do you just keep it completely pure like that process that Friday? It's just everyone's on the lookout for interesting people. They get invited and, and, and you just keep going. You, you make sure you don't contaminate the process because, oh, we're having a conversation with X and B. We better have these people. Do you just oh, yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, Friday, it's called Dum Dum Club. Everybody's invited. Um, email tan at technologyhumansandtaste.com and you can come. Um, so Friday, yeah, there's no brief. Um, and we run it, um, we run it, it's like a spin class. Um, and we obviously, we did it a big portion, about a third of our office is, um, a restaurant that we host, um, live, um, events all the time, particularly this Friday party. And that is unbriefed. And the only brief is what is a problem and what is a truth. And then we trade what's really interesting particularly as you look at it through the lens of NLP, natural language processing, um, you start to see emergent trends in the data. So through political moments, through seasonal moments, through the gender breakdown of a particular environment, um, you can start to see that people often are talking about the same thing, right? So we can evaluate the zeitgeist quite programmatically. Um, we can also create analysis of a creative person. So I've got a map of my creativity and how it's evolved through five years of Fridays, lots of fascinating stuff, which is available to clients in really cool and interesting ways. But that Friday, yes, is a grand experiment. Um, it's very much the heart of who we are. Um, it's like I said, and this is where to kind of tie together the threads, my obsession with Passover, happy birthday. I love a good dance party. This company is all premised on a party. Um, and that amazing experience of that dinner party was great. Who'd you sit next to? You know, I sat next to this, this woman, she works in real estate, but like, she was amazing. We have that experience built into the heart of our company every single Friday. So that's a long way of saying, yes, it's pure. We don't, we don't mess with that one, but we have evolved incredibly rigorous, expanded and very tactical versions for clients and everything we do as a company is premised on facilitated conversations that generate outside thinking that we then use both of the machine and human facilitation to extract really interesting um, inspiration to take work to a new and strategic place. And you can see it in our portfolio. A lot of the ideas we've made that have changed the way e-commerce works for some of America's biggest companies or changed the social persona of some of America's biggest companies or been the first Super Bowl spot of some of America's most innovative companies, all were born out of us forcing ourselves to listen to outside voices and discover an idea, notice an idea, as opposed to squeezing one out of our tired brains. Yeah, I mean... the. There's, um, you know, what you were suggesting before was that um, there's a danger, there's a, advertising is a pretty homogeneous business. Mm -hmm. 
he said it's uh you know um white guys wearing cool sneakers mm -hmm. in the east coast or west coast or living in us and there is not much diversity of opinion um so i like the idea that you you, you know you're seeking you're seeking something different um i have to i also think I, I put this thing together about a year ago called the conditions for creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, it was my, my kind of thought was pretty simple. was if creative, if, if the creatives are the most important talent in your agency, which is a bit of an unfair representation, but it's pretty true. Mm -hmm. Why are they, why do we know so little about them? Why mm -hmm. do we manage mm -hmm. them so poorly? If you use the analogy of, of sports and athletes, there's not a professional sports team in the world that doesn't know the physiology and psychology of every one of their athletes on the roster. Who mm -hmm. plays better with who? Who plays really well in the third quarter versus the fourth quarter? Mm -hmm. uh, we know nothing about the creative process or how to optimize it or how to make it great or how to get yeah. the best out of people. We, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a veil of, kind of machismo kind of yeah we know we know how this works just don't ask us any questions we'll we'll bring you the results and and you've got burnout you've got people who are in kind of fear of going into work every day um you know and i'm not sure that's i'm not sure those are the environments where you get great ideas from yeah i well i i agree and i think um this is kind of going back to how you broke out the three types of people. Um, I, I think you do have to get back to the source. So first of all, the reason we meet every Friday and every single person and every single freelancer um, has to come on Friday and participate in essential creative exercise is because one thing I learned, I went to acting school um, as a writer and um, everybody rehearses. To your point, athletes rehearse. Drummers practice their rudiments. If you're a professional creative who's coming up with concepts that are gonna affect millions, if not billions of people, no one asks you to practice. <laughs> and so we practice, right? We practice and our walls are covered with forms because every single time anybody at our company is walking around and needs to solve a problem, they've got a form to fill out because creativity is a practice. Right. And so once you think about it as a practice, yeah, like what is the sports drink of creativity? How do you fuel it? And the fact is um, the big idea, right? Um, the, the genius creative is a fallacy. A big idea is 50 small ideas and one of them emerged, right? It's where the execution comes that things are really rewarded. So A, we don't throw anything away, right? We codify and digitize absolutely everything. Um, and we make an immense um, amount of work out of all the work that we throw away. But second of all, we always make sure to constantly be creating to make sure that um, everybody here has a chance to be the big brain. Um, we talk a little bit about something we call the genius problem. Um, there's this kind of idea of the, um, the, the, the 
professional creative, right? The, the, the professional industry genius. Um, and everybody's got one, right? Um, cause like inspired by people like Warhol, um, inspired by artists like factory artists, like Kehinde Wiley, um, or Jeff Koons. We've got this idea that like, there's one person who comes up with all this amazing stuff and then distributes it out to the world. But that's a fallacy, right? Because behind each of those people is a bunch of humans. Kanye has ghostwriters, right? Damien Hirst has painted very few paintings in his career. And when you actually get in there, you realize that all of those geniuses, often most of whom are men, sit atop these factories of other geniuses who aren't recognized for their effort. So what we try to do is diminish the role of the industry genius and make sure that we're constantly having a conversation with, which is collaborative so that we can start to celebrate ideas all the time. And the conditions of creativity are rooted in like the very premise of a creative economy. If you think because you're the CCO, your ideas are going to be always better than somebody who's an associate creative director or a copywriter. On a human level, we know that can't be true because look at literally everything on the internet. Very few incredibly powerful, amazing, successful internet things have been generated from the brain of a chief creative officer. A lot of them have been generated by like random kids in their bedrooms. And if you want to create conditions for creativity as a society and as a culture, you have to create a process which is rigorous every day where the conditions of creativity are like emphatically enforced in a rigorous borderline fascist way so that ideas have a chance to surface and be celebrated all the time. And for me, that's the road that we're on as an organization. Um, and it's going to take a long time. And it's hard because everybody's ego gets involved, mine more than anybody, and everybody wants to be the genius but imagine a world where having ideas together was as easy as walking into a restaurant and getting everybody to sing happy birthday. Like that's the place that I want to get to where it's not agencies that are in charge of having the biggest ideas in the world. It's every single human. And I think that's totally possible if we create to your point, the conditions for creativity. What about the writer's room? That seems like so, a interesting place where, you, you, you've got you got a different you got some people who would be considered geniuses who are working with somebody who's just maybe started in the writer's room mm -hmm. but sort of a sort of a desire to get the best out of this place in a in a in a in a enforced time-based way that forces collaboration mm -hmm. um, I've always thought the writer's room is a really interesting thing to look Absolutely. at. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's a great example. You know, people talk a lot about the film set where everybody walks on and knows their job and doesn't have to talk about it. And I think the writer's room is also a great paradigm to talk about collaboration um, in a kind of an ideal way. If there's a writer's room that exists on an amazing cloud of creativity somewhere, a hundred percent. We're spitballing, right? We're putting ideas up on the wall. Um, but I think there's two things that we have to consider when we talk about the environment of the writer's room. One is story structure, right? Um, particularly in linear media where writer's rooms happen most of the time, there's an immense amount of structure that grow, goes into, for example, 
whether it's online TV or, or um, broadcast TV. And all of that is mandated, you know, by the media. We need commercial breaks. We need water cooler breaks. Um, and so that limits creativity. So already you're not freely pitching like, this is what I think is best. You're th- saying, this is what I think is going to work best for this format. Second of all, um, the structure of the creative economy of entertainment, where writers rooms mostly exist. Um, if your name is on a script by itself, it's different than if it's got an ampersand after it and somebody else's name and you're getting paid one way. If it has the word and that's a different paycheck, right? So in that writer's room, people are competing. And, um, when you talk to, you know, people that work in television and film, um, all the bias, that exists in, in marketing um, is also present there. And there are uh, like economic changes that need to happen in the world of entertainment and in the world of marketing to facilitate real change in those creative spaces. Um, for us, we're doing our best and failing, right? Absolutely. I would never say that we're successful in any sort of facilitation of like a better world or anything, but we're doing our best to create an environment where ideas win the day, right? Where you don't know where the idea came from. All you know is that the idea has been shared with the group um, and we share a diversity of ideas. So the client that's paying for it is exposed to all of the best ideas, not just the three that the CCO picked. Um, And the next step, right? We've proven it works. Our work is effective. Our work is engaging. Our work helps brands sell more stuff is thinking about the economy of it. Um, And so we're doing a lot of research around DAOs and NFTs and um, talking about how we use things like the blockchain to make ownership of creative different, to to be a company that really values participation um, based on the effort um, and based on the impact as opposed to based on the resume. That's cool. I just want to go back to, a couple of thoughts. Well, we, one one is a completely new one, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, but the other is, um, I'm really interested in, because it was in my conditions that um, every idea should be capped. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just agencies are terrible at that. They, 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 things get scrapped. The redundancy is ridiculous mm-hmm. uh, because the ideas aren't polished enough. But you could, if you look at the history of ideas, that's where great ideas come from. There's often an unpolished idea that someone has in one lab who talks to another scientist who has a similar kind of idea, but a little different. And it happens five years later and the fact mm-hmm. that they eat and they bring these two ideas together, create something brilliant, but it took, it takes something to make those things better. But if they'd been ignored, they never would have happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I think it's really interesting that you keep hold of these. Maybe they have applications for different people. Maybe they have applications for the existing client, but in a different time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that, I don't, I don't think people. I just don't think people do that. They just, they just stuff gets put in the trash. And yeah, everyone's got. Um, like I worship at the altar of Stephen Johnson, um, who talks about this in many yeah, yeah. different ways. But one of my favorite stories about the trash can is uh, Carrie. Um, Stephen King wrote the first chapter and threw it away. And his wife picked it up and was like, read it. And she's like, this is what it feels like to go to high school as a woman. You need to finish this book. And that was the first book he sold. 
the trash can is where it's at. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's sort of, there's a similar thing, which is um, one of my favorite commercials. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kid, you know, a, a student of the British advertising in the 90s. You know, that was kind of when I grew up. And well, British advertising sort of at that time was characterized by very highly visual style of storytelling, um, usually completely music driven, uh, mm -hmm. absolutely the best talent of directors and photographers, um, and no, usually no voiceovers at all, um, mm -hmm. and so perhaps at the end. And there's a famous, there's a Guinness spot that I love. It's just, it's, um, it is actually, it is actually one where it is narrated, but um, it's about this uh, champion swimmer. Um, and they're in Italy, they're in a, a place like Portofino or somewhere like that. And he, his, this man swims around the harbor and he, and he, and he takes his time. And is the, the, the time he takes to swim is the time it takes to pour a Guinness. Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't have this guy cast. You know, they, they, go, they go to this Italian town. They haven't got this principal actor cast. And it's only like the night before that they're walking around the town that they see this guy in a cafe and mm -hmm. they say, can you swim? You know, <laughs> you can't, you can't, that's not planning. That's that sort of like the, you know, the, the reason that people get 25 takes. It's um, the fact that that famous photographer um, didn't have the settings quite right in the camera and took mm -hmm. this photograph because it was an accident because all the learned behavior was almost too predictable that hundred percent accident that made something better. And I think any director you talk to um, will tell you that they're always looking for accidents. Yeah. And I think um, it's, it's a, it's a great insight. And I think for, for me, it's at the heart of um, if we're going to disrupt anything, um, it's this idea that you want to be good and you want to be new and you want to be provocative, but you don't want to be risky. We talk about ourselves as being the safe way to be risky, um, because we exist in a place of risky all the time there. If you look at our work, there is stuff out there where we have made something that we knew was possible that we didn't know how to make. And that is absolutely the place to be if you're trying to make stuff that people are interested in. And the creative economy that we exist in is all about, you know, every agency knows it. Like they hired you because of the spots that you already made, right? You give them the brief and the insight that you thought of at the beginning, and then you just like trudge along and there's no creative. It's not creative at all. It's just like, this is the thing that's going to make every com everybody comfortable. And the thing that I most understand based on like my years of experience, that sucks, right? That's why people hate advertising. And that's why franchises are the most successful movies because the creative economy is built to do the same thing over and over again that tests well. Whereas culture is about reinvention. Culture is second to second, blowing things up and coming up with new incredible ways to attack a problem. So how do you create an environment where it's okay to risk it all? Every single time. You don't know who your talent is until the day you arrive. 
Not because you're crazy or irresponsible, because that's how you find the guy, right? Um, Tiger Woods, here's, we're shooting the big spot. He's bouncing the golf ball on the end of his, that's the spot, right? So let's only make work like that. Let's only discover things. Let's only start in the trash can and let's stop paying attention to people who've done it before. Let's stop listening to the people who say, well, you probably saw in my portfolio, I've made six spots that all look exactly the same with a truck. Want another one? It's like, no, I don't want another one. Like I want somebody who like dreams of connecting to people around travel or movement or wind or, you know, engines or sound or doing something illegal. And I want to see what they would do. And I want to create an environment where I get enough of those people in a room and I can code talk between them and the strategic objectives of the client. And at the end, we've got 50, a hundred different versions of what that truck is going to do in that commercial. And we can pick the one that is truly the best. And that's risk, right? That is creativity. And I also think that it's representative of something that's really strategic because a real strategy doesn't take you where you thought you were going to go. A real strategy needs to take you to somewhere that you didn't know you were going to end up. It's about discovery. And that's to your point, innovation. That's all the world changing ideas. No one was thinking of when they thought of them. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, these things, you know, it's, it's, it's the the details make the difference. Mm -hmm. You know, you could have cost, you know, for that Guinness spot, they could have cost a guy in London who could, sort of seemed right, but he wasn't, there was something, there's these intangible qualities, right? That mm -hmm. you get, they're sort of magic. That is the difference between something that super connects emotionally in a really strong way versus something that just seems a little bit predictable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's, that's where that seems to me to, to come from. It's the spontaneity. Um, and, 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 and in, in, I mean, I'm talking about all kinds of, you know, every, to me, every form of creativity is different. Uh, I'm just thinking about the 60 or the 30 second spot. Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, these just, the difference between success and failure is, is pushing the boundaries um, to things that are magical. Um, and sometimes those things are based on decisions that are made at the last second. Yeah. All the, I mean, it all, you know, it all happens in the edit and the risk that we're familiar with is, you know, overshooting and, and coverage and getting everybody there on the shoot to make sure we got every single thing so that we can fix it in the edit. But again, that still limits the possibilities. When you look at that Reddit ad in the Super Bowl, I mean, like shut the front door. That's the thing. It's the only ad that mattered. And it's because people didn't watch it. People did it. Like, and you can, if you can deliver a story, like one exercise we do here is like, um, we write the 30 second spot and then imagine it's real, right? And then just go, let's make that, 
right? Why contain it in a camera where we're going to have makeup and costumes when we can actually let real humans visit this place? How do we make a mixed reality experience with everything we do? And that's what that Reddit ad was, right? Um, that's what some of our signal work was, um, where it actually forces people to take the extra step and engage with it. Um, but to achieve success there, right? To really create an environment where people are hunting for that and brands understand how important that is, you need to start thinking again on the level of the KPI and the metric. So if you look at um, a lot of our work, the metrics are like, we've got an interactive experience we made for Walmart called Kid HQ. Um, 14 and a half minutes of play in this advertising environment. Um, 96% of the kids that did it sent an email to their parents. Impossible metrics that don't mean anything because they're not industry standard metrics. Well, one of the challenges of the creative economy is like the industry standard metrics. If you're chasing those, you're going to make industry standard work and industry standard work. People don't like it. Like people don't like advertising. Um, so if you want to make stuff that people really care about, we need to start thinking about how we measure success. And sometimes the fact that the way that you measure it has to be unique to that thing. And we need to figure out a conversation where people can actually take the time to grok that and be like, like, how was this successful for this audience in a way that it might not have been successful based on the media budget. Um, and all of those pieces I think have to be considered to start creating truly creative environments and conditions for creativity. I had this big. Um, we're kind of wrapping into the into the into the final uh, straight. Um, I had this big kind of. I don't know what it, I don't know what it was. It was kind of a rant, I guess, against the industry its failure to come up with commercial ideas. In sense of, I looked. At, I saw the Museum of Ice Cream, mm -hmm. and I go, well, it's a three hundred million dollar brand. Mm -hmm. It's requires some strategic skills and some design skills and some some business skills to get the funding but why why are agent why are, why are agencies not even close to i mean if we're talking about a creator economy if we're talking about a creatively driven economy if we're talking mm -hmm. about ideas um it strikes me as extraordinary that um the the the, the talent and wherewithal should should exist within the four walls of the agency, but um, mm -hmm. we haven't seen anything. I well, and I, I think that this is where you get into. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure we spend a lot of time on the same similar LinkedIn page. Um, there's the talking about what you believe in as an agency, and then there's the functionally changing the way that you work to create the conditions where that stuff becomes. So we. Um, have an originals group. Um, the people that work in the originals group do not work on client business. And the originals group, um, which is led by a woman named Julia Gorbach, um, who's an incredible award-winning filmmaker um, and artist, um, is there to make, as we say, work that clients aren't ready to buy yet. A couple things happen. First, it means when a client needs something that's never been made before, chances are we've already made it. Like, 
we're the leading agency for, you know, generative art at this point. Um, we've done tons of augmented reality. We've done all of these things with bleeding edge technology. Um, we've developed products. We've had films that have, um, you know, made during lockdown and festivals and everything. Um, and we are launching a marketplace to make all this stuff available. Um, but we have to invest in it as a company, right? When you look at mischief, the real mischief, which is the small, not agency one in Williamsburg, not the agency, um, their model, right, of drops, they've got their own struggles. Like, are they a fashion brand? Are they not a fashion brand? But that's totally possible, right? And to be able to monetize something like that is very much the future of, in my mind, the creative company. And what we strive to do is A, invest and monetize original ideas and the next great museum of ice cream um, to be able to like always be working, right? We have never been an agency where if like our pretzels client didn't call us that the creative team is sitting around doing Pokemon Go, like there's, there's forms on the wall, right? And every single idea gets celebrated and engaged with. And those are hard things that because agencies are run by people who grew up in agencies, they just, it wouldn't occur to them. Right. But if you start to build a creative company out of people who come from truly creative environments, right, where you have to create to make a living, there's no such thing as downtime. You've got to build your own audience. That makes the most sense in the world. And for me, coming from that environment, like with all the resources we have, how could we not be making shit all the time um, and monetizing it? Because we're grownups and we understand that, you know, rent costs money. Um, can I say one additional point to kind of go back to your three types of humans? Um, because I don't want it to seem like I'm dinging advertising. It's quite the opposite, actually. Um, the, if anything, I kind of hate art. <laughs> um, the, I think art is disingenuous. Um, and you talked about artists, you talked about corporates and you talked about agency folks and artists have this thing where like they make something and they say it's perfect. Right. And it's perfect. Cause I said, it's perfect. Right. And then they go out and they try to get butts in seats and they try to sell it. And obviously what they said is perfect. Their art, this like amazing heart driven emotional thing like was made for commerce Black box theater in Bushwick or not, you're trying to get butts and seats. So you're trying to think about how to get people to like this thing. And to say that it's important in a way, just because it's art, I think is a little bit crazy. Advertising, right? You start with a goal. You say, this is what we're trying to achieve. You're trying to sell something. And I think that that is really beautiful. I think it's harder than art. I think it's more effective than art. Um, the challenge is a lot of the people that work in agencies because of advertising, because of the creator economy, like are working in service of sales internally. They're trying to sell through ideas. So what we want to do is start to evolve that, you know, creative community. So the people who need to create, understand the beauty of trying to achieve something successful, the beauty of selling products, because once you start to take that like idea that something you made is special, something you made could be perfect and apply it to a commerce driven exercise, that is like ninja level creativity. And I think, you know, it's like 
you can be the world's best carpenter and some of your chairs are going to be comfortable and some of them are going to be beautiful, but they're all great chairs. And I think if you take that kind of way of thinking about ideas to the agency world, there's a ton of opportunity. And I think it's a really exciting time to be in advertising. One final question. Yeah. Um, recommendations uh, in terms of inspiration, um, things mm -hmm. to read, people to read, things to look at. Yeah. What, what, what's, on your, what's on your radar screen right now that you find particularly interesting? Um, so, <laughs> um, the, yeah, we have a, we have a, um, a reading list and I'll give you a couple of references, but I went back and started rereading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I read the five book trilogy a couple of times as a young person. And if you have the opportunity, especially if you're a writer to read the first one, I think Douglas Adams is an extraordinary writer. I think his character design is like fairly biased and he doesn't really, um, he's not quite really equitable in the way that he designs characters, but I think it's a beautiful um, and really hilarious book. I also read Neil Gaiman's biography of Douglas Adams recently. So I'm really, I'm really loving that. But um, the books that I provide to people when they start at the company are um, Stephen Johnson's uh, Where Good Ideas Come From. That is very much our Bible. Um, and I think Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson is a vital read for anyone who is really making anything right now because it's the most coherent metaphor for the internet um, and how to think about the machine and the world that we live in. Um, and then if I were to last one last final one is... Um, you Look Like a Thing and I Love You, which the name of the author escapes me and I really apologize because I think she's a genius, but um, it's about AI and it's the most readable, um, understandable kind of manual to understand how to start playing with intelligent machines and how they're dumb, but like can be so much fun to interact with. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Brilliant Absolutely. Really enjoyed it. And I'll let you know when... Uh, Post it up live. Killer, thank you so much, Ed. I really enjoyed the conversation. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.